You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Visit bpn.fm to discover more. I'm Michael R. Jackson, and this is The Fabulous Invalid. Fabulous Invalid, a Broadway-centric podcast where we take an in-depth look at the theater through interviews with actors, writers, directors, designers, and everyone in between. I'm Jamie Dumont, recovering Broadway marketer, personal chef, and event planner. And I'm Rob Russo, writer and theater critic with StageLeft.NYC. Hi, Rob. Hi, Jamie. Well, we're back at Orso. Yes. Yay. That's fun. I love being here. Yes, as always. And uh, the holiday season is upon us. So it is. Fa la 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 la. It's very exciting. Yeah, it's very close. Yes. It's yes. almost the end of the year. It's kind of hard to imagine. You know what? Bring it on. Yeah. Bring it on. You ready it's for? It's been a great year, but I'm I'm ready to ready for 2020. Ready to turn the page. Okay. Yeah. You're a page yeah. turner. I, well, I have been accused. Good. Well, yeah. J'accuse. I, I stand accused. I stand accused. Um, well, today we have a really exciting guest joining us at our usual table here at Orso. That we do. Yes. Yeah. Back in June, mm-hmm. there was a remarkable new musical at Playwrights Horizon off Broadway yes. that extended and extended yeah. what, <laughs> twice, three times. I think it was. I think it was twice. It might have been three times. And what show is that? Right. Uh, that show is a strange loop with uh, book, music, and lyrics by today's guest, Michael R. Jackson. Oh, I'm so excited. I know. I know. We were both floored by it. We saw it individually. And then we had to go back a second time and experience See, it together. That's you know? true. <laughs> Which was pretty funny. But it's the kind of show, as we'll get into with Michael, that the more you see it, the more it reveals itself to you. And the more you listen to it. Yes. It is on deep rotation in my life right yeah, now. Yeah, for sure. And, and yours too, I think. Yeah, no, it has, it's been on a loop. How many times am I going to make that joke in this episode? Oh, I don't know. That's one. Yeah, we'll, one. We'll, we'll keep a counter. We need a bell. To- well, in case you did miss it uh, during its run at Playwrights, I believe it was sold out. Um, a Strange Loop is a loosely autobiographical, or as Michael prefers to call it, uh, self-referential musical uh, by and about a black queer man writing a musical about a black queer man who's writing a musical about a black queer man and so on and so forth. Uh, the, the dramaturgy of this show is mind-blowing, and I think we both agree it's it's unlike anything we've ever seen before that is why we decided i think then and there that we had to get him on our show (laughs) it was a goal of the season we stalked him on social media and and through email i plan to come clean about that with yeah i do too yeah yeah (laughs) i I have a feeling he might already know that well yeah Uh, (laughs) i i i get the sense he knows what he's walking into but as as you say or if you don't say you suggest what's social media for if not stalking it is all about stalking you know i mean it 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 plays perfectly into my warped sense of (laughs) what's right and wrong in the world yeah well on that note um, (laughs) should we should we get to our interview with michael let's do michael we are delighted to have you with us tonight at orso Welcome. Um, if you didn't know from our social media stalking, I don't know if you picked up on this, but we are both huge fans of the yeah, Strange Link. I don't know if you've noticed us stalking you, but we have, we have <laughs> I, quite I a bit. Out that. Yeah. I keep track of my Twitter. Right? Yeah. I mean, don't That's we all? Good. Uh, so yeah. we're really excited to have you with us tonight. To, Thank to talk you. About Happy it. to be here. Yes. So to begin, could you give us an overview of what A Strange Loop is about or describe it in your words? Sure. A Strange Loop is a musical about a black gay musical theater writer who works as an usher at a Broadway show, who's writing a musical about a black gay musical theater writer who works as an usher at a Broadway show, who's writing a musical about a black gay musical theater writer who works as an usher at a Broadway show, um, ad infinitum, and is sort of (laughs) cycling through his own perception of himself and his self-hatred. So, where did you get the idea to write this musical? Um, well, it began as a monologue, that a thinly veiled personal monologue that I had written when I was about to graduate from undergrad at NYU. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, at that time, it was called Why I Can't Get Work. And <laughs> it was just sort of like, a, as I mentioned, thinly veiled personal monologue about a young black man sort of walking around New York City wondering <laughs> why life was so terrible. And it was just for me, just a, a way of sort of venting as I was sort of like getting very nervous about graduating from college, having a playwriting degree, not knowing what the fuck I was going to do with that, and just needing to put that into some sort of form. A couple of years later, I went to grad school and I started writing music that were sort of these personal songs that then 
I ended up trying to put into the monologue, and then it sort of, over time, sort of turned into a musical. One of the things that struck me in the theater is the the narrative clarity of the piece, mm-hmm. which is clearly the result of drafts and drafts oh, yes. and drafts and rewrites lots and, and lots of rewriting. What was it? What was the process like of actually writing the show? Because there's a million different ways you could tell it, right? And there's and it could very easily go off track. Right? Well, that was the thing is that like early on, I didn't have a container for it to sort of live right. in because I didn't know. I knew that there was like this main character and then these sort of. Um, other principal characters who were kind of abstract, but I didn't have an identity for them. Mm -hmm. And I kept changing what they were called. Um, And then finally, you know, after years and years of sort of like figuring out like what, and the story as a result kept shifting and changing, like, and elements kept coming in and out of it because I just couldn't figure out like what the actual sort of event was. And it wasn't until, well, first thing that happened was, uh, one day I was I was I used to be an usher. Surprise, surprise! <laughs> um, I used to usher at the New Amsterdam Theater when The Lion King and Mary Poppins were there, and I did a short stint with Aladdin. But during the early Lion King years, one day I was on the mezzanine. I was stationed on the mezzanine right as we were opening the doors to the theater, and then this older woman had come in and was sort of had already gone into her seat, but then she was calling up to ask, she didn't want to walk all the way up the stairs to ask the usher a question, so she like yelled out, usher, usher. And I sort of clocked that, and I was like, oh, wait, that's like a, that's like a thing in this musical. Yeah. Like the sort of musical motif and also like an identity for the main character. Usher, 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 usher. So I like named him Usher, and then like from then another thing that happened was like the title had changed from Why I Can't Get Work to Fast Food Town, which was like a name on the song that I had written a long time ago. And then there used to be this whole thing about Liz Fair in the piece where Usher was trying to get her permission to use her music in the musical and he was writing mashups <laughs> against some of her songs which I had been doing and so I was concurrently trying to get Liz Fair's permission to use his songs and then after many years she was like no you cannot use these songs in this musical but like one of the mashups was going to I had written this song that's not in the show anymore called Fanboy that was a mashup with her song Strange Loop and I didn't know what the term Strange Loop referred to for many years, but I loved that song on her album. And so one day I looked up, I just Googled Strange Loop, and the thing that came up was Douglas Hofstadter, who is this cognitive scientist who who coined this term to talk about the notion of self-reference in the brain. And the self is sort of being a... a, a like a, a sort of a concept that can only be defined by referring back to itself. So it's kind of a paradox. And once I, and I was like, oh wait, that's like literally what I'm trying to write about, but don't have a container for. Yeah. And so then suddenly the piece became called that and was sort of about self-reference. But I, and then the like little pieces would come in. So then the next piece was like, I was like, I want to give Usher like a thing that he has to do in the piece which and that thing turned into writing a gospel play which his mother and his agent wanted him to do and so just slowly bit by bit all these pieces would sort of come together that would suggest a structure and i just kept wanting to make sure that there that you could as unconventional as this piece would be that like there was an inherent sort of logic and forward motion to it even though it was by nature uh uh it had endless egress to it. Did you ever communicate with Liz Fair? So I have met Liz Fair a couple of times over the years, always, though always in like small bites, and never like in in, in a in a real way like not in like a real like communicating like we're now like follow each other on Twitter and she's like very aware of me and of the project and like that sort of thing but she lives in LA and I sort of feel like a time will come 
he didn't get to see the show this past time, but, like, a time will come when, like, I feel like he will see it and we'll have, like, a proper meeting <laughs> that's not just, like, fan to, you know, to rock star. You know what I mean? Like, it'll be, like, you know, it'll be, like, a proper meeting. I do. So we're, I have not we're been both rushing artists. We're yeah, yeah. meeting on those terms. Right. right. Yeah. I feel like it's an appropriate time for me to confess something. <gasps> I grew up with Liz Fair. So she and I were childhood friends. And we played, um, we used to play together when we were Michael's little kids is in right school. <laughs> so I actually reached out to her, um, but I didn't think of it until yesterday. So I reached out to her to see if I could get her to like FaceTime us or do, you know, like do something, eat, just send an email, whatever. And, um, but unfortunately she's on a book tour. So we, she and I have not connected. Um, and I, Wait, are you it. for real? I'm totally for real. I'm, I'm, I'm what? I, swe- I swear to God. In fact, I, if I had had time, I would have brought my, um, you know, yearbook from school to show you a photo. Wait, of did you her. go to New Trier? No, or did you go I, to Oberlin? No, I, I went to school in Los Angeles, but oh, okay. I went to. We went to um, to Greeley and Skokie and Washburn, so we went to grade school together. And I oh left. Oh my fucking god! I left. I left. I How did you bury the lead? Well, <laughs> that's about burying it. I mean, I am. I am Jamie's a I man am, of many surprises. I am I, coming <laughs> clean with it. Um, I will say that she and I have not remained close friends. Sure, sure, I, sure. So I did don't you wanna... read horror stories? Huh? Did you read her, her memoir? Uh, no. In fact, I was just told that I should read it because apparently there's stuff in it about our childhood that pertains to stuff we used to do. I don't know. I have to, I have to read it. But what I remember about Liz pre- predominantly, because Liz was, you know, we were all geeks. We were all mm-hmm. losers. We were all terribly unpopular. Mm-hmm. And we used to play this game called Vampires. And we would just basically suck each other's necks. And it was like highly right. sexualized and, you know, the 70s. So in the in the process of developing the show, you know, we're the lucky beneficiaries who get to sit in a theater and see a finished sparkling product that's amazing and has lighted lights and costumes and, you know, has been so well honed. But obviously what I'm hearing and what I know to be true is that it takes years and years to get a show like this. That's right. Written and on stage. So as as you're going through these various iterations, um, was it always sort of shepherded by Playwrights Horizons, or were there other entities along the way? Like, what, what, what is the journey like for a musical like this? Um, well, I guess, like, the first thing to sort of, like, keep in mind is I sort of had assumed that this musical would never be produced. Like, I just... I mean, I was working on it, for sure, and I had, like, opportunities here and there to work on it, but I just sort of, like, was like, no one's going to do this. Because like, of this the musical, content. Yeah, it's, it's too crazy, <laughs> it's too gay, it's too black, it's too all the things, and, like, and I sort of, as someone who moved to New York over 20 years ago, like, I sort of had been watching the landscape of musical theater that whole time, right. and I was just like, so if that's happening, this is not happening. Right. If that's happening, this is. I mean, you were literally happen. ushering at Disney shows. Yeah, and I was, shows, like, right? and I, and yeah, and that was really what I, it cemented for me. It's like when I went and like would usher at the Lion King night after night, and I was like, and I would see Broadway like up close, like commercial theater. I was like, there's no way. But so I was like, so then I can just write this however the fuck I want to write it. Right. So I kept, I I would work on it, and then like I, the first sort of people who touched it. Where when it was a non the monologue, it got performed as part of um, the develop, developing artists theater company, which is uh, now sort of part of Vin- the Vineyard. That's like a youth theater company, and so it got performed there like in two thousand one or two, I want to say. Wow! And then the one man show version that I did one time only <laughs> was at Ars Nova in like two thousand six. From there, I did a reading at the Lark in like 2007, I and then say. from there, I did a reading at NYU Grad Musical Theater Writing with Steven. We did a reading of the piece in 2015. So we did. I did something at the Johnny Mercer Songwriting Colony uh, at Tuppeer. Me about doing a concert at 54 Below, and that was like a big deal. I got a commercial and producer and. Uh, and Barbara Whitman and off, uh, and then Hate 73 sort of they did a reading at Playwrights on November 11th 2016 and then we did an industry reading at uh, Musical Theater Factory and Hate 73 like nine months later and then from there Playwrights committed to doing the piece Less than two So you've just named like more than a dozen different yeah. entities that Oh wait and I forgot to mention the first place where I did the, the one-man show version was Playwrights Realm. 
Okay. Right when they first were starting. So one more. There you go. Yeah. So it takes it takes a village. Truly. To, to get something up on its feet. Oh yes. Wow. Because white girls can do anything. ushering and seeing shows like The Lion King and the other shows you referenced that were telling you, you know, I, this isn't going to happen, you know, this this isn't the show I'm writing or this isn't going to happen for me. Did that, like, inform or help you write the piece that you, that a strange, help you write this a strange loop? Because it, you certainly didn't stop, right? It feels like it almost fueled you to keep going in the direction that you were going. Yeah, I mean, because, like, well, because after, because I ushered for a long time, and then I, like, kind of got phased out by management at, at New Amsterdam, and then I started working at TKTS okay. as a flyer, flyering for Rock of Ages. <laughs> I did that for a summer. It was, like, the worst summer of my life. I kept seeing Broadway up close. Right. And so I was just, like, I'm not, like, I, I feel like I was absorbing something about that I also was going to put in the show but I also was like I'm not trying to appease these people in right. any way I think that's the question I was I think that's where I was going which is there wasn't a show like you've written that you could reference right there there, there wasn't anything you could say oh I'm writing that so there's well, a place for me I mean it, I think uh, if you really dig down like there were a ton that I like company I like it's it's referenced pretty specifically from the very beginning. Bobby, Bobby, baby, Bobby, baby, Usher, 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 Usher. You know, mm-hmm. so like that, um, a chorus line, passing strange, the bubbly black girl sheds her chameleon skin. Like all a lot of these shows were all not necessarily direct inspirations in terms of content, but like in form. Right. And that they all in their own ways were sort of form passing strange. They were all form breaking musicals that were still in the musical theater tradition. And like, you know, I was a student of musicals having gone to grad school, and so I loved them, but I also hated the, like, the business. Like, I hated what, like, it seemed that the business of musical, of making musical theaters was doing to the actual storytelling. And I felt, I felt, like, determined that I could create something that was just, had as much entertainment value as something that you would expect to see on Broadway, but that it had the sort of like heart and intelligence, like heart and mind, right? That that you know are are in a lot of those classic musicals of yesteryear that are harder to get produced today. Well, it's it's that strange reinforcing thing where because something is successful, other there's a commercial push right. to emulate it, right? And yeah. then that just rips the heart out of whatever mm-hmm. people are creating and producing, right? Yeah, and I just feel like. Musicals, the form of musicals, the musical theater form is so powerful that you can do anything with it. Right. And like, and I'm often disappointed by what it sometimes, how little it seems people want to use that form to do. And I'm just like, it doesn't have to be like that. So I, I set out while, of course, realizing that if you do that, no one will produce it. That I'm going to try to make this musical be as form breaking and pushing but like as coherent as possible we want to know what's going on in new york we want to know what's going on in your life with people there living any which way and to act with what the b-i-b-l-e say we want to know what's going on in new york we want to know if you've been chasing your dream. 
Do you also feel a certain pressure on the other end of things, uh, you know, just thinking about the show and, and Usher's own um, opinion or point of view towards what is thought of as black mm-hmm. media, right? You know, that, that he, he rejects wanting to write about slavery or write about police violence because that's right. not what's interesting to him, right? right? Do you feel that same sort of pressure as a black writer that there's an expectation that you need to write something unapologetically black, right? Well, Which is the I phrase mean, used in the show. Yeah, I mean, but I guess, like, I think A Strange Loop is unapologetically black. Yes. But, like, what does black mean? Like, I'm, like, really... This is actually a, a topic of another piece that I'm, like, thinking about writing. But, like, I just had started to really, especially as a theater writer and sort of looking at the landscape of theater over the last year or two, like, I'd started to wonder about what the theater industry thinks black writers' role is in this medium because it often feels to me like what theater would like for black writers to do is to sort of like be soothsayers and like explain to white people sort of what's happening over the course of history and time and space and not really let us spend any time thinking about ourselves or about like that may encompass some of those questions but that are not we're not strictly here to like be historians and or to punish you white people or any of these things and and so like as I was getting closer and closer to the production and doing my rewrites I was very conscious of wanting to resist being put in any sort of box and because the piece formally is about someone who is being introspective sort of endlessly I've realized that there were opportunities to both comment on the boxes that he felt he was being put in, but also he was putting that commenting in a box at the same time. So I wanted to sort of kind of have my cake and eat it too in this musical as much as possible. Well, you said um, to the New York Times, and I had typed it down because I thought it it really struck me, about how you wanted to use your voice, and I'm going to quote you, to talk about the potential for creation and for living and for dealing with the problems of the world, for laughing and for joy, rather than talking about your own, quote, potential destruction. Yeah, I mean, because, like, there's so many, I feel like, and this is beyond just theater, like, there's, it often seems like we can only understand black existence if it's, like, being killed or destroyed or shot or enslaved or... Whatever, and it's not to say that those that those stories should not be told. I think that they should, but like, I just wonder, like, what would it mean if we could also see lots of stories about black people struggling and surviving, like, because that to me is like, um, that's what happens in any other story of people. You know, like Evan Hansen doesn't die at the end. Why shouldn't Usher live? Why shouldn't a black character really sort of learn something about? their own life and like survive. I just think it's important for people Or just to live life. Or just, just live, live life. Live life day to day. Right. And when he does, we are like bowled over by it, right? Right. I mean Yeah yeah. Because unfortunately there aren't that many examples of a musical Yeah, you where know you have a character like Usher. Right. And like and that and that was there was also that. Like I was just kind of like, you know, there's been, you know, with the success of something like Moonlight, there's Perhaps, you know, people now feel like, oh, we can see, like, black queer stories more clearly and, like, we'll program these things. But, like, but even in, in when you see those stories, the people in them are always, like, a lot of times it just stepped out of Calvin Klein ads. Right. And I was just like, that has never, that has never been my experience, ever. And, like, and I sort of, and not just in even a black gay context, just even to think about myself as, like, a gay man, it's like, I've been consuming gay content that has been like white men for most of my life. And then in 2016, Moonlight comes out. And then it's like, now it's black gay men, but then the black gay men are still the same crime models or whatever. And so then I just like had to create a space for like other, for another image of like blackness and black queerness that I could like could feel at home at in some way and like and hopefully share with other people so they could see it 
His blackness doesn't look blue in any moonlight, which makes him harder to see. That's why he clings to his silly inner white girl, the same one clinging to me. We want to be free. little bit about Larry Owens. So, um, I can't talk about Larry without talking about the rest of the cast, because um, the ev- every person who sort of came to it, came to it, came to the piece, came to it because early on in my career as a musical theater writer, I mostly was just doing a bunch of concerts, and in those concerts that you would like I and I was writing what I was writing for these concerts and like I would often have trouble finding people who wanted to sing what I like some of the like grittier gayer whatever things and there was this one particular concert I did at Joe's Pub called So Fucking Gay I did it in like 2010 where I had all these singers like drop out or threaten to drop out because they were worried about how they would be perceived by Telsey and whomever else and like of the people, and like one of the people who came, who like I met during that, who stuck with me was James Jackson Jr., who plays Thought Two in um, A Strange Loop. And prior to that, and like, and once he sort of like committed to really singing my material and doing my work, he stayed like a constant collaborator mm. with me through everything. And then John Andrew Morrison had been singing the song, he sings A Strange Loop periodically. That was an early song that uh, I had written maybe sort of thinking that there might be a piece but not sure and he sang that song for me at Ars Nova back in 2008 Wow! and then he just kept singing it over the years even when there wasn't like a script and then like um, L. Morgan Lee was someone who had been recommended to me by a musical theater writing colleague Gordon Leary and she like had been just with the piece so everyone kept coming to it and then like but as far as Leary goes uh, and Jason Beasy was someone who had been recommended to me also by another musical theater writing colleague. And they just, and they ended up becoming these like integral, really super important sort of um, uh, bolts and nuts in what kept the piece together. So then as far as Larry goes, how that came about was I always knew that someone was going to have to play Usher who wasn't me. And I just didn't look to the musical theater landscape and see who that could be because no one really fit the bill. And then one day on Facebook, I just was like, hey, Facebook, <laughs> if I'm casting, I'm, I'm having a musical theater piece that I'm writing where if race and age and gender weren't an issue, I would cast Mary Louise Parker. Is there someone black and gay? Who is that? And like 90 comments later where everyone was like, what are you talking about? That doesn't exist. Whoever, like Larry had popped up because I had met him through the musical theater factory. Had said, hey, I can um, keep the the part warm while you're um, looking for the perfect person or whatever. When it was time to cast the reading that we were doing, I just handpicked everyone because I didn't want to go through people hemming and hawing about content and so I made sure that every person sort of passed my character and integrity test and then I just called Larry up because he was like the only person who would in all the years that ever been like me, 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 me and then he just sort of ended up sticking with it. There was never a moment at which you thought you would sing or play Usher. 
No, because I felt if I did that, it would just change it into a totally different event. And like, and I just, I really wanted it to just be like a musical. And I'm not an actor. Like, I'm, I'm a writer, and I wanted to write. I wanted to rewrite. I wanted to, you know, be able to watch it and like make it be as good as it could be. Mm. And I just felt like me being in it would be a distraction. And also, like vocally, it would have sat in a much different place. Well, the strength of that ensemble was unbelievable. I mean, the opening number in particular yeah. just knocked me off my Yeah, I mean, I love all of those people. Yeah, and the way that all of the thoughts interacted together, um, it, was, it, was, it, was, it was clear that there was a history there, right? I mean, it, yeah. these weren't just actors he picked up off the street, right? I mean, yeah, they, no, and, and we... And that's what made coming into the first day of rehearsal so special, mm. was that we came into rehearsal with, like, five years of, of working on it. And so we, we were so much further ahead than it's just, like, you know, it was a first day and people didn't know the material. Like, we were really able to move, like, much further. Like, dig into it on a way you couldn't. It, yeah. It, you know, it's it's also remarkable, I think, especially with periodically, mm-hmm. what you said a moment ago was, a, you know, a song that had been written for a while and had been performed and worked on. And I think that really shows, because that number in particular reads like it's its own piece. Right. Right. It, it I mean, it works beautifully in the show, but it also stands alone, as do most of the songs, quite frankly. Right. But that number in particular, I think, is the one number that, even for me... My mother is nothing like that character, that the mother that's being referenced, and yet I can connect with that mother-son relationship, and I think everyone can, mm-hmm. and it's just performed so beautifully, and it's such a, it's such a perfect example of what that di- of what a mother-son dynamic right. is, because it, it captures a, a complexity, right? That mm-hmm. is, at the same time that there's this deep love and joyful love that this right. mother has for her son on his 26th birthday, mm-hmm. right? She also turns on a dime yeah. and harbors this deep homophobia. Right, right, right. And it's like, it's how ugly. do you, how, it's ugly, yeah. and how it's do ugly. you reconcile that? But that's so real. Right. It's so real. Yeah, and, that, and I think, like, John Andrew, is, he just knows how to synthesize those two things. And that love, love isn't just this sort of one-dimensional thing. It can be painful. Cause I love you and I don't want your soul to be wasted. It hurts me so bad sometimes I can't taste it. Hell is real. Sinners burning. Sinners churning in rivers of fire. Because of filthy, unholy desire Hell is real Though we love you Don't repent Cause you know it would please us Son, you should do it so you can see Jesus First of all, I'm I am so grateful that there is a cast recording. Me too. I mean that in and of itself, not only to document those performances, but also to share the show with folks who you know couldn't couldn't get to it. Right. But it, it's it's a rare example to me of a cast recording that like totally captures the essence of the show. And I know I'm sure you worked very hard yeah, no, to we, make sure that was the case. What was that process like? Um. So we had an incredible. Well, first of all, I just want to give like honor to Playwrights Horizons for budgeting for the cast album to be recorded 
not every you know off Broadway theater does that, and, and like a lot of really great shows can be lost. Yeah. Or you know, and or there, if you don't have a cast recording, it can like affect how a, the future life of something. And so I'm like so grateful to them, to them, and to Barbara Whitman. Um, so that was something you knew going in. You were I did. Record. Well, I asked them just because I I was like, is there how? I was like, how do who do I? I said, who do I need to ask about? If we can have a cast album, then because I wanted, I felt like it would probably take a long time to get that process going, and I just asked naively, and they're like, "Oh no, we have, we have that budgeted," and I was like so excited about that. Mm-hmm. Um, they're smart there, yeah. And then, uh, so then, and they have, I guess, uh, oh, I don't know if it's a deal or whatever. The person who the producer they worked with is this incredible um, man named Michael Crater, who works at Yellow Sound Lab within Broadway records and he which he I think just did like a brilliant job of like mixing the album and like working with us to make sure that we you know stayed on a good schedule to record it and like so I, I the process was like you know he and I sort of talking through things and my music director Rona Siddiqui who um sort of figuring out what the cuts would be because we weren't doing we had, to, we had to make sure the album was 16 minutes or less. And so we had to sort of cut some things, cut right. within some of the songs in order to, to maintain that. And so it was just a lot of working through that and then, like, figuring out, you know, what the band was going to be doing. Um, Charlie Rosen, my orchestrator, did a lot of work on that to make sure that everything came together. Um, so it was just like a, 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 a methodical process just to make sure that we stayed under time and that everything sounded as good as it could for this for an album like this yeah. especially since like a strange loop isn't like a musical theatery album so we wanted to have like that sort of rock bite to it that's interesting that you say it's not a musical theatery album why do you say that well meaning like it's not it has a songwriting the songwriting in it is like is based in my singer my songwriter sensibilities as opposed to if I were, let's say, writing Carolina Change, which is more composed, mm. all the songs in A Strange Loop are like songs that I like figured out how to link together and like what the sort of integrity of them would be within and of themselves. But they, it, it's not like a composed show. I would call A Strange Loop what used to be called a concept musical. Mm. And so it's written very much like that yeah. as opposed to like a traditional book musical. Writing a gospel play, writing a gospel play, writing a gospel play, cause that's what the people want. Well, thank you for making sure that writing a gospel play was not left on the cutting floor. Because that's we, something that you could very moment, easily we, have we done. We thought about cutting it, and I was like, I don't think I could live without. Yeah, I mean, because that Larry's performance yeah. is incredible. And, I, you know, the, I, I saw the show twice, and coming back the second time, it was like the moment in the show I couldn't wait to see because of the way that he plays, what, five, six characters and yeah, yeah. has a whole scene with himself. Shanitha, Michelle, I done made some tater salad. Come on now, I done put my foot in this. Uh-oh, ain't Patty. I love me some tater salad now and I'm hungry as his hell. Yo, fast behind ain't hungry for nothing but a crack rock and a stripper pole. Girl, go wash your hand. It was the moment that I sort of had developed. Like, it actually was inspired from, I have one of my very dear friends is uh, my friend Kisha Edwards-Gansey. And she and I, she was the person who actually first um, told me about Tyler Perry. I didn't know who he was. When we both started off as freshmen at NYU. And one day we were like looking at something I don't know what I don't know what we were looking at it because it, I, I thought it was like on YouTube but YouTube didn't exist at that time <laughs> Shell what wrong baby you ain't eating up your tater salad oh ain't Patty how can I eat tater salad when there's no ring on my finger Michelle girl you better forget about that ring and learn how to drop it like it's hot ga 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 fix it Jesus we were looking at something where we were like Tyler Perry, and and I heard that a Tyler Perry play was coming to New York, and so for her birthday I took her to see uh, Why Did I Get Married at the Beacon Theater, 
um, which starred Kelly Price, R&B's Kelly Price. And he and Kisha, like, years later, did an impression of what she thought a Tyler Perry play was, where she played all the parts, and I just was rolling on the floor. <laughs> well... Have you prayed? I get down on my black knees every night. I know what I do down on my black knees, girl. And then, like, years later after that, I, like, was writing this moment, and I was like, oh, I want to see Usher do a version of that. And so that's sort of where that came from. Well, if you're getting down on your knees and the Lord isn't blessing you the way you think he ought to, then maybe you don't know Well, one thing that we haven't really delved into yet so far, um, we've talked a lot about your writing, but we haven't really talked about your music. Mm-hmm. And it's rare to, f- to find someone who does all three, who's the sole author of a musical, um, and does all three so well, I might add. Um, Thank you. <laughs> but I was a little, um, not shocked, but surprised maybe to learn when you were telling us about your, your own um, education that you didn't that you studied playwriting, mm-hmm. and that you studied music in graduate school. Is that right? Or no? So my development is that as a kid, I was a child actor for a moment, and then I quit the business when I was thirteen, <laughs> and I was writing fiction and poetry. But I've been playing piano since I was eight years old. Okay, and I learned how to play piano initially primarily by ear. So I was just always constantly playing and making up songs and making up songs and making up songs. And I used to try to write songs, but I didn't know how to write lyrics when I was growing up. And yeah. so I would just keep making up little musical phrases and so forth, but they had nowhere to go. So then I studied playwriting in undergrad, and so I was learning a lot about storytelling. And then when I went to grad school, I went, in, went into the program, the graduate musical theater writing program, as a book writer. And then they teach you how to write lyrics as part of that because all the book writers are going to end up being lyricists on their thesis projects. Mm -hmm. And so once I started learning about lyric writing, it ended up being like a really great container for writing that I had been doing as a poetry and fiction writer and playwright going all the way back to when I was writing in middle school and high school. And so then at the end of, toward the end of the first year, one of my uh, our teachers said, if you're a lyricist who's never written music and you want to try it, go for it for this one assignment and vice versa. So since I had gotten a handle on song form, I decided to try writing my own music to something. And so the song that came out of that was called Memory Song, which is In a Strange Loop. Though right. so at that time, it was just a standalone song for me. And so... it. And I played that song for my class, and people liked it, and they encouraged me to continue writing my own music, even though I was going to be paired with a composer for my thesis project for the second year. And so I just kept writing songs on the side. And like that's always why I would say it's funny that like gradually over time, people came to know me as a composer, even though I don't have a composition background. Right. <laughs> I'm not the greatest pianist at all. And I moved to New York. I have a BFA in playwriting, and I moved to New York to write soap operas. <laughs> so, like my way, my like path to com- composing was a very yeah. topsy turvy, yeah. twisty, bendy one. But like, I always had a good ear for music, and so I just kept doing it because I'd been my whole life had been singing in choirs and playing piano and yeah. listening to music and loving music and like, and just and it was just there was it sort of made sense that I, I would end up writing my own. Guilt and shame, Jesus' name, church every Sunday. These are my memories, these are my memories. Eat his body, drink his blood, communion buffet. These are my memories, it's our memories. After church, we're driving home to Radio Crackle. Jazz bills at the Motown Blues and skin is a shackle. The one lone black gay boy I knew who chose to turn his back on the Lord. Black gay boy I knew who chose to turn his back on the Lord. 
you just said two words that mean a lot to me. What's that? Soap opera. Uh, oh, what, yeah. What, what did, did you come to New York to write for a specific show? One Night to Live. The greatest show ever it is. On, on television. It is. Although I have to say, in the space between the end of Strange Loop and where I just was like so exhausted and doing nothing, I found myself going online and watching old episodes of Guiding Light from like 1993 and 90s, in the 90s. Guiding Light in the 90s was hot. It was lit, yeah. It was so good. Yeah, yeah. It's, and it still is good. Like, if you could watch these episodes now, they are so good. Yeah. CBS is doing a lot of good stuff. As World Turns was good, too. Yeah, so I I told I told Michael Park this story. Um, I love Michael Park. Uh, when we Jack interviewed Snyder. Him. Yes, when we interviewed him, and, and, and he looked at me like, I don't care, and that and that is <laughs> that um, my father was actually engaged to Catherine Hayes before he what? met my mother. Yes, he. In what? fact, I in told fact, you he has secrets. He, 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 he broke his engagement with Catherine Hayes to marry my mother. How, and, and see, this is the reaction I wanted, right? Mike, Michael Park, love him. He's a wonderful actor. He was like next. I don't. Well, care. no, but he because he's like a. An actor's actor, right? And that, right, and right, that right, was right. like a day job for him. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a day job that he did extremely well right. forever, he, forever. Yeah. And then he like seamlessly was like, "I'm going back to theater, and I'm going to be a musical theater actor and a theater actor and whatever." It's great, but no, he was so good. I mean, <laughs> I mean, I know everything. I mean, I know everything about that industry. Um, and like one of the actors from Life to Live came to see a strange loop, and I like lost my mind. Tell me who it is. Um, Hillary B. Smith. I have Nora. Nora. Yeah, I've been watching One Life to Live since 19... I, I started uh, with the trial of Karen Wolick. Which was, I watch regularly. Her I, scene. I, have I, you I, seen the clip they have where it's uh, Rita McIntyre describing it? Yes. Rita yes. McIntyre yes. is what makes it. I mean, in addition to Judith Light being a fucking brilliant, brilliant. Oh my genius, yeah. <laughs> giving you... You want that slime? You want that filth? Talbot Huddleston! Like, they had names, like, character names, like Talbot Huddleston. Yeah. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, they really knew how to give it to you. I'll give you tomorrow. Let me be the one to share with with. And each day that follows. Cause we only have one life to live. You talked about Liz Fair, but... Other than Liz, what is the music that has inspired you? I mean, it's so much of it. So much. Um, I mean, well, it's funny that, like, Liz is, like, such a, t- a touchstone for a strange loop, but, like, my, like, first white girl and my number one of all is Tori Amos. Number one. No no one above her. She, she's, like, was my initial person who inspired me to write. Like, if I hadn't heard Touring and This Is Music, I would not be writing musical theater. Wow. Because she had that much of a, an influence on me musically, lyrically in some ways. Just in her openness, her honesty, I, I was very um, moved by that. The way that she talks a lot about religion and sexuality, mm-hmm. that's so much a part of a strange loop. Um, and so she's like, like someone who like I is like a deity. It's like I always call her. I was called Joni Mitchell the mother, Liz the daughter, and Tori is the Holy Ghost. <laughs> That's quite a trinity. Yeah, it really. Those is. are like my three, my three inner white girls. Yeah. Wow. Um, but then like beyond that, like I grew up in Detroit in Motown. My all I ever listened to when I was growing up, my parents constantly had Motown, the the uh, Philadelphia sound. 70s soul music, all of that is such a part of my musical vocabulary that I adore and love, treasure. Um, people like Billy Joel, um, uh, Laura Nero, uh, all kinds of gospel music like the Clark Sisters, Twinkie Clark, Yolanda Adams, um, uh, the Hawkins family, like so much gospel music, uh, and then in musical theater, which I came to later, like there, I like loved Sondheim, though I don't 
necessarily count him as like a, he's not like a musical influence per se, per se but certainly as a, a lyricist and as a story as someone who thinks of lyric writing as playwriting I, I like definitely look to him he's like to me one of the masters of that um, I love the musical Raisin that not a lot of people know it's yeah. one of the best songwriting you'll ever hear and it does a beautiful job it actually makes the case for why it, it, why sing in that story of Raisin and the Sun um, I love Kirsten Child is somebody who encountering her work was something that in, with the body black girl Shedrick and Indian skin that like said you can write something personal um, Passing Strange was another one uh, uh, musically, I mean, just it's from so many places. I yeah. love music. I love music. Oh, Jay's. Anyway. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> We're with you. <laughs> Amazing. So it's comes from all over. Yeah. Yeah. But Tori is my number one. Did your parents see the show? My parents did see the show, and they loved it. They loved it. Yeah. Were you nervous about them coming? I was, but more. Mostly because I just didn't know how they would receive it, just even as a as a piece of theater, because like they don't go to the theater ever, and so I just didn't know what how they what the experience of that would be like for them. But they were so it's kind of a major point in our relationship, I think, because like I had been living in New York for all these years, and they like were never seen anything that I was writing and they got to see what I was doing and so like they were like immensely proud and like they were just so impressed by the how it was put together I don't know that they necessarily understood every aspect of it but like they just loved to see me shining and and so it was like a really a great day when they came and like my mom like With, bought the cast album yeah. and sometimes she'll like sing it to me like when she when I answer the phone and I always think that's funny <laughs> what does she sing well she'll be, she'll be like she'll be like I just called to remind you periodically like she'll sing that to me yeah. or but like did she inspire know. that song well so I took a voicemail that she had left for me yeah. and I used that as a jumping off point for the song yeah but like and so she just here I think it gives her like an amusement I feel like they kind of responded to the piece almost as though they had been given a Sardis caricature you know you'd be like oh my god it's a Sardis I got a caricature name <laughs> where it's flattering and it looks enough like you but not right. really like yeah, you yeah. <laughs> right what was that thing or that experience that made you want to work in the theater When I was 18, I was a freshman at NYU playwriting in the dramatic writing department, and they took us to see Death of a Salesman with Brian Dennehy, and it was the first thing that I ever saw where I like cried at the end, and like I felt really moved by it because that play is about the fact that in America you're worth more dead than alive and like it's delivered through this like old white man who was couldn't be further from my experience or even understanding of the world in any way and yet they managed in that production for me to take that message across the proscenium and deliver it to like an 18 year old black kid middle class kid from Detroit and I was struck by like the power to a theater to create empathy amongst unlike people and I think it was one of the things that like I as a result of that I kept I was like I want to in something I write I want people to feel that and so I feel like A Strange Loop was my attempt to sort of reverse that experience not specifically just so that like some old white man in the audience couldn't empathize but yes but that like that an audience could empathize with like someone who maybe isn't like them but also is like them so like that was like why in the sort of even the marketing of the show I didn't like try to say a strange loop is for black queers or whatever I like wanted it to say this is about 
what it's like to be a self in general and a black queer self in particular so that everyone could come to it however they want to and that like the show is ultimately a test of their empathy mm. and so so death of a salesman in 1999 was that for me and you realize that that's exactly what you've done with a strange loop i mean it's something that like i think about seeing that production a lot i've thought about it a lot over the years and i wanted to create something like similar in a strange loop because like you have because the audience is coming in watching this person who's not normally center stage in a musical or a play or anywhere in life they're not even center stage and so i wanted people i was like i people have to grapple with this person grappling with himself and in grappling and, and watching that person grapple with himself they can think about their own self but they also can think about him which is exactly what happened yeah or what happens. Yeah, and I hope. I mean, I, and I, to me, any production should produce that experience. Couldn't agree more. Well, no. thank you for coming down. Thank you so thank much. Thank you for having me. It was <laughs> fun talking to you. here with you may be wondering. Michael R. Jackson's A Strange Loop dares to expand our notion of who gets to anchor a musical and how their story is told. Usher's story is about a queer black man navigating his place in the world, artistically and sexually, pushing for a more expansive view of his own black identity, and in the process, broadening our conceptions of gayness and blackness as reflected in works of art. The show is not only masterfully written by Michael R. Jackson, but is itself a plot point in the ongoing effort to present stories on stage that reflect the full spectrum of our diverse society. I recently came across a passage written by a two-time guest of our show, playwright David Henry Huang. David wrote, quote, American theater is beginning to discover Americans. Black theater, women's theater, gay theater, Asian American theater, Hispanic theater, these are more than merely fads or splinter movements. They are attempts by the American theater to come to grips with the multicultural character of our society, to portray it truthfully. As such, they represent simply the artistic face of what is essentially a political transformation. David wrote those words in 1982, and while there is still much more progress to be made, in 2019, it is finally starting to feel like that political transformation has arrived, with works like A Strange Loop, Slave Play, and Soft Power playing to sold-out crowds and receiving critical acclaim, not to mention the juggernauts of In the Heights and Hamilton, the success of the musical Fun Home, and thrilling plays like Heidi Schreck's What the Constitution Means to Me, Claire Barron's Dance Nation, Sarah Delap's The Wolves, and Ming Pfeiffer's Usual Girls, to name a few. Still, Michael R. Jackson remains one of the few black musical theater writers who wears the hat of composer and lyricist ever to have a musical presented in New York. You may be wondering, who are some of the other black artists, the pioneers who came before Michael? Well, in 1921, Shuffle Along was the first fully-fledged Broadway musical to feature an all-black cast, playwright, composer, and lyricist, with songs by Yubi Blake and Noble Sissel, and a book by Effie Miller and Aubrey Lyles. A bona fide hit, it ran 484 performances, a record at the time. You may have heard about Shuffle Along because of the 2016 musical conceived and written by George Wolfe that told the amazing story behind the making of that 1921 musical and all that followed. In 1959, Lorraine Hansberry's Raisin in the Sun became the first play written by a black woman to be produced on Broadway, as well as the first with a black director. In 1971, Mickey Grant became the first black woman to write both the music and lyrics to a Broadway musical with Don't Bother Me, I Can't Cope, a musical review in which each song illuminates a different slice of black life, from home to church, workplace to dance hall, traversing a wide variety of musical styles, including jazz, funk, soul, rock, calypso, and gospel. As we talked about with Andre De Shields, the 1975 musical The Wiz was a major milestone for black theater. Though the book was written by a white man, the Tony Award-winning music and lyrics by Charlie Smalls, along with director and costume designer Jeffrey Holder's Touch, transformed the show into a huge mainstream hit that laid the ground for later reviews like Bubbling Brown Sugar and Duke Ellington's Sophisticated Ladies. In the years to come, August Wilson and Susan Laurie Parks would also emerge as major black dramatists, with works produced on Broadway and all around the country. Composer and lyricist Kirsten Childs, a 1999 recipient of the Jonathan Larson Grant, wrote the Obie Award-winning semi-autobiographical musical The Bubbly Black Girl Sheds Her Chameleon Skin in the year 2000, 
which, coincidentally, also premiered at Playwrights Horizons, where Strange Loop played this last summer. Theater in America still remains a very white space, but a space that I hope, and as David Henry Huang presaged in 1982, is finally cracking open to reflect the diversity of our country. And we are all the beneficiaries of that. If you haven't listened to A Strange Loop beyond the excerpts we've included in this episode, check out that fabulous cast recording. I promise that, like me, you'll also want to keep it playing on a loop. And however you can, find ways to support theater made by women, non-white, and LGBTQ artists. Maybe I don't need changing. Maybe I should regroup. Cause change is just an illusion. And I is just an illusion. If thoughts are just an illusion. Then what a strange, strange, strange Hi y'all, this is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network.